0: This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most
1: powerful women. You find yourself asking your colleagues and sometimes your friends to do what is nearly impossible in government, which is to hurry up.
0: We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Ever wonder what it's like to work at the highest levels in national security and foreign policy during a crisis? My guests today have firsthand experience in how crisis management works in government. Dr. Alice Hunt Friend is a senior fellow in the International Security Program at CSIS. She was at the Pentagon when the Benghazi attacks happened. Shannon Culbertson is a visiting fellow in the International Security Program and the Transnational Threats Project. She was on the National Security Council staff during the attempted coup in Turkey. I spoke with both about their experiences. Allison Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Bev. Hi, Bev. This conversation for our regular Smart Women, Smart Power podcast listeners is going to be a little bit different because it grew out of a conversation that we've been having in the international security program while we're all working virtually. On Fridays, we have these brown bag lunches where different staff members talk about their career paths and the interesting things that they've done along the way. And Alice and Shannon have both shared their experiences having, in Alice's case, worked in the Pentagon and Shannon's case, working on the staff of the National Security Council. And uh, they talked a lot about dealing with crises in government, crisis management. So that's what we're going to talk about here today and share their experiences and give you kind of a behind-the-scenes feel of what it's like to be there when something really, really big and usually not very good is actually happening. Alice, I'll start with you. You were principal director of African affairs in the office of the undersecretary of defense for policy when the Benghazi attacks happened and you were there for the aftermath. You also dealt with the French intervention in Mali in 2013. Let's start there and talk about crisis management 101 and what you learned.
2: Yeah, you know, I think the the first thing to keep in mind for those who are working in government as a crisis unfolds is really that the very first thing that senior leaders want and that bureaucracy wants is information. And crises by definition have a lot of ambiguity attached to them. And particularly in the case of the Benghazi attacks, you know, they started at around nine forty PM local time in Libya, which meant that we were first hearing about it in DC really around four o'clock in the afternoon our time. And the information we were getting at first was very sketchy. And it was also happening in the context of these ongoing protests that had been happening against US embassies and US diplomatic compounds. Um, in other parts of North and Sub-Saharan Africa over an insulting video uh, uh, that had come out of the United States that involved the Islamic prophet. And so we in the Africa office had been dealing with, you know, several thousand protesters showing up in the streets of Khartoum, threatening the U.S. and German embassies. The embassy in Tunisia and Tunis was, you know, very nearly overrun. And so we'd already been grappling with that for several days. And so when we first started getting these sketchy reports about an attack happening on the diplomatic consulate in Benghazi, you know, we had this bias, this sort of informational context to see it through that lens. And we weren't getting very much information at all. So we hear what's going on. And the first thing that the Undersecretary for Policy's front office wants to know is what's happening. And I, you know, wasn't sure what the answer to that question was. And it took several hours before we even had the beginnings of an understanding. And frankly, several days before we really pieced together. Uh, what had happened there.
0: And before you go further with this line of thought, I want to loop in Shannon for her perspective, because Shannon was on the staff of the National Security Council serving as director for Turkey, Greece and Cyprus when the attempted coup happened in Turkey. Talk us through that situation. And then I'll bring you both in to talk about what you learned from all of this.
1: Well, there were actually a lot of similarities with what Alice is describing, but also some important differences. Obviously, every crisis is a little bit different. But in this one in particular, um, we didn't have uh, really any warning. And it wasn't an event that happened in the context of other similar events like the protests that Alice describes. So we actually had a bit of a, in that sort of scenario, a slower realization that something was going on our first indications that something serious was happening in Turkey probably also happened at around 4 p.m. And frankly, the indications that I were seeing were all in the open source. I didn't receive a call from anybody in government. I just happened to be looking at open source news, Turkish sources, and that there was a lot of peculiar activity, a lot of peculiar military activity at times and in places that were unexpected. So in some ways, Though the demand for information would subsequently increase dramatically, it was people like me, sort of staff level across government, who noticed something was happening and alerted our bosses that we weren't really sure what was happening, but something unusual was happening in Turkey. As a result, the system sort of began to activate itself and to look into it more closely And then things really began to escalate in Turkey and it became clear that what we were dealing with was a much larger scale than even we had anticipated initially. But in a scenario like that where there is no warning and there's not, you know, it's not in the context of a global wave of protests and frankly was a genuine surprise to Turkey watchers, we got, I wouldn't say a slow start, but the snowball began, I think, smaller and then grew much larger as time went on.
0: In both your cases, Did you find that the first reports coming in from the situation on the ground were not as accurate as you would later find out when more information became available?
2: Yeah, I don't know if it was so much the reporting from the ground was inaccurate as it was so piecemeal and vague and ambiguous that those of us way back in D.C. didn't know how to interpret it. And I can't comment on any intelligence I saw, obviously. But I will say that the overall interpretation back in DC for at least a couple of days was still that these might have been in Benghazi, these might have been protesters that turned violent or the violence might have been linked in some way to these protests that we'd been seeing. Again, we had this bias in our thinking that wanted to see patterns and didn't see this as its own unique event. You know, I think we were also working off of a bias, this belief that the United States had liberated Libya. Therefore, this kind of violence against the ambassador was just not the first probability or likely occurrence that we reached for. You know, I think the same can be said of Ambassador Stevens. I think he he felt that he had a lot of goodwill, and so he was in in Benghazi with the belief that, you know, that he wasn't running that high a risk or that he was running a risk that wasn't so lethal. And I think we were all in that place for a while. And it was in part because we knew that there had been attacks. We knew that the compounds had been set on fire. We knew there were mortar attacks, but we didn't know why. We didn't know what the group was. We didn't know what the intentions were behind it. We didn't know what it was trying to signal. And so that was left to our interpretation until the intelligence caught up with events on the ground. And again, that took time. And what would you say was the biggest lesson learned there now that you have
0: hindsight and time to look back on that situation? Was it just the bias of what had been happening and the default assumption that was probably what was going on in this case? Or was it, uh, you know, is the lesson take whatever you know into consideration and then look, look for something that you might not necessarily think is happening, and ask the question, might it be something else?
2: I think all over the world, including in our own capital, there has in the past been a sense of the United States power bestowing on it some kind of omniscience that it doesn't have. And so I think a lot of the time, as any historian will tell you, it takes a long time to really understand the meaning of events but policymaking and government action can't wait for the historian's judgment. And so all of the time you are taking actions in a policy context, quite a good share of it is guesswork. And it's educated guesswork, and you educate yourself as much as you possibly can. And the amount of experience you have in government, the amount of experience you have in a particular portfolio or particular region is also really important to building your capacity for judgment. But at the end of the day, I think my experience with the Benghazi attacks, which was you know a very sort of narrow, 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 small window onto it for, for the U.S. government, really was this phenomenon of extreme ambiguity and in information and just having to figure out what to do as a policymaker, as somebody who's trying to govern, who has to take action before... Clarity is available. And sometimes you are simply constrained into a series of extremely suboptimal options. A lot of the follow up to the Benghazi attacks and the recriminations about it were about why DOD couldn't respond faster, why we weren't able to protect our personnel out there. And over and over again, the answer in the briefings was even if we'd had perfect information and understood exactly what was happening the time in which the attacks unfolded, there wasn't actually enough time to mount a really robust response. And so, you know, I look back on it as a tragedy and one of those times when despite the power of the United States, there are times when we just can't be fast enough.
0: And you also had to deal with the fact this was happening in a highly politically charged time.
2: Yeah, I mean, that happened later. Again, my own experience, I was sort of deep down in the bureaucracy. And so my experience of it was very much as a technocrat. What's happening? What do I relay to my bosses? What sort of option space do they have? And the the politics of it, again, part of this theme of interpretation that sort of caught up to things later which happens every time we take American casualties overseas. It happened after the Niger ambush. You can think of all kinds of times in American history when the public and the Congress were surprised by taking American casualties somewhere, and they naturally and, of course, want answers right away. And that again is a place where if the answers aren't forthcoming really quickly, it's really difficult because you want to be as transparent as possible when you're in one of these governing positions. But you also want to make sure that the information you're providing is accurate. And that's a challenge when
0: things are happening very quickly, half a world away. That's right. And Shannon, jump in here because the situation in Turkey happened at a time when I don't know if there was anyone who quote unquote, saw it coming. Talk a bit about how you handled this and what you learned in terms of managing a crisis.
1: I think first to Alice's point about fragmentary information, I, I had the same experience with the coup attempt in Turkey where we got what would later become small pieces of a larger puzzle. The challenge for us at the time or the way in which that colored our interpretation was that we did not understand the scope and scale of the coup attempt, which is to say it is one thing to hear of a singular event or a singular Turkish military unit appearing to be acting in contravention of their national authorities. It is another thing altogether when you realize sort of that that is happening across the Turkish military, across the country, across their facilities, and in many different cities. And that level and collation of data points also lags reality. I mean, you can watch the news and see that there are things happening in lots of different places, but understanding the totality of the picture and the totality of, frankly, of the attempt to overthrow the government in Turkey took a little bit of time. You know, on the the question of, you know, what you learn and, and how you handle these things, I think... Well, in terms of how you handle it, and at least in my case, I would welcome Alice's perspectives as well, is the realization that you don't really have a choice. You're in the job that you're in, and you have responsibilities in that job. In my case, I was the director for Turkey at the National Security Council, and whether or not I saw it coming, which I did not, I there were requirements of me and expectations on me and the obligations that I had for my bosses. In order to make the US government response sort of reasonable, sensible, and timely, I think that was the sort of realization that in those moments nobody is is entirely prepared for a surprise if we were entirely prepared and knew it was coming, it wouldn't be a surprise and we would have you know in the case of Benghazi, perhaps moved some assets around and in the case of Turkey perhaps would have provided our ally with some additional warning with any warning that we knew it was coming. We, of course, did not. You know, these sorts of events happen. That is the nature of national security um, work in government. And it is the nature of the business that you should be prepared any day that you walk into a government building as a national security professional, that you may have an emergency that you did not expect. And I think we're all sort of trained in that way. We don't have lots of these, but you see them happen to others and in others' portfolios, and you can observe and learn. And if you have a good boss and mentors, they will give you tips to say, you know, they'll tell you their stories and, and you can be prepared for them. But, you know, on the substance of the exact event, you're, you're never really ready. That's what makes it a crisis. You just have to sort of reach back into your own experiences and, and those who have mentored you in the past.
2: I'll also say, I think this is a An area where the fact that government is a group project becomes really apparent, and it's especially true for senior leaders. I also think it's really important to point out that if there's a crisis in government, everybody is really contributing to the group project together so really good bosses are reaching out to find all their experts and to listen to their experts my experience with the Benghazi attacks you know I was I think two weeks into the job and I had way more experience in sub-Saharan Africa than North Africa and so thank goodness I had this fantastic desk officer for Libya and I just turned to him and said okay you know, tell me what we gotta do. What, you know, what's the important information? What do we need to know? How do I interpret what's coming in? And I really stood back and let him do a lot of the communicating with senior leaders because he knew what he was talking about. And I think, you know, really good leadership looks like that. Good leadership goes and finds the best experts and listens to them and then, you know, leverages that, combines it with their own
1: experience and expertise in governing and, and moves forward from there. I agree with that. And I think back on those early hours in the Turkey coup attempt, one of the very first things I did was reach out to sort of my key colleagues who were also Turkey watchers in other parts of government and say to them, I was also new to the job, but not new to Turkey, that... I shared a little bit of what I knew. I solicited anything they might have heard, but just basically opened that channel and said, I may be reaching out to you late this evening. If you're going home, could you please let me know what your phone number is? Those sorts of very small things. But I created essentially my own tiny community of interest among those who I knew were really good on these issues with whom I had worked before. And that was very helpful to me because they were able to, you know, sort of feed information To me, at the White House, I was able to pass information that I had that may be relevant for their particular aspect of uh, working on Turkey. But really, the group project, as Alice put it, is a really great way of thinking about it. I leaned on that aspect heavily as well.
0: You both talked about in the brown bags how this made you feel kind of like you had been shot out of a cannon because you were both very early into your positions when these crises happened. How important is it to know how to both lead from below and lead from above. You've both alluded to situations where you've gone to colleagues and asked for help. So if you could shine some light on how you make sure in a crisis situation you're leading both from below and from above.
2: Yeah, I mean, the shot out of a cannon piece of it is you're not flying through the world. The world is flying past you <laughs> at a suddenly much greater speed than just mere moments ago. And that experience, by its nature, feels very out of control. And so the absolute best thing you can do is figure out ways to at least feel like you are slowing down and able to pause and able to think. And again, that's where your team that's around you, your network of people that you trust, and frankly, the credibility that you've built up with other people over time really becomes important because you're going to do everything from rely directly on other people working this issue set with you to really needing, you know, your own support system. You know, I needed to go home at the end of the day and say to my husband, wow, I just had a crazy day. And, you know, and he was he was just a supportive person. The nature of crisis in government is that you have to have both the humility to know that you're not quite equipped to do this and also the resources and the confidence to know that you're gonna do the best you can, that you're gonna do as well, if not a little better than anyone else, and to proceed with that mix of humility and confidence and just do the very best that you are able to do and do it in good faith and i think the more you do that the more you will be able to lead people at every other level around you including by letting them know when you need their leadership which i think is also very important
1: i think when we chatted about this the other day i remarked that it is a uh, crisis like this when it pays not to have been a jerk that you have you know established not only your your substantive expertise in your area but have a healthy trusting network of folks whom you have relied on and and who have re- relied upon you as well that you can tap into that the demand for information in this sort of scenario as Alice mentioned is incredibly high and you find yourself asking your colleagues, and sometimes your friends, if you've been working with them for a long time, to do what is nearly impossible in government, which is to hurry up and get me information on a timeline that would otherwise just be impossible. And so, you know, if you have these trusting and self and mutually enforcing relationships with your colleagues, they trust you when you say, I'm sorry, but I need it in five minutes. And they, they trust that that is a real demand that you are experiencing and are passing on to them and not one that you are just inventing out of, out of whole cloth. So I, I really do think that that, the, the sort of group project and the trusting sort of reciprocal relationships that you have in government really pay off in these moments. On leadership, I have a lot of funny anecdotes about this sort of 24 to 48 hours about things that happened to me. Obviously, the the situation itself wasn't funny. But one of them was that in addition to it being my second week on the National Security Council staff, it was a Friday afternoon that the coup attempt began, and they were supposed to be painting our office over the weekend. And so they had already come up and had hung plastic sheeting and started painting by the time things really were clear that we were in the middle of a crisis um we weren't able to use the door to our normal office suite the fumes were terrible it was it was something out of a out of a comedy at the time my immediate supervisor was also out of the country so i was new inhaling paint fumes and my immediate boss wasn't there <laughs> and i had at that point just kind of put my head down and decided that i was just going to keep going and that it did paint fumes and no boss notwithstanding i was going to get the job done and Late in the evening, the chief of staff of the National Security Council staff came up to visit us, and uh, she walked in and took one look around the office and realized that it was completely unsustainable, that we were going to spend the weekend that way, both uncomfortable but also inconvenienced with other people coming in and out of the office. She turned around, walked out, and called and said, they're not painting that office this weekend take down all the sheeting, you know, unlock the locked doors, put it back the way it was. She didn't tell us she was going to do it. She just did it and told us that she had done it. And she cleared the way for us to be able to get through what was going to be a stressful period and better serve our bosses, honestly. And that sort of leadership, although it had nothing to do with the substance, but everything to do with making room for people to do their jobs in a crisis environment really left an impact on me. That is
0: quite the story, Shannon. And as we uh, come to the end of our time here, I want to ask one final question about applying any lessons that you learned in dealing with crisis management in government to the crisis this country is currently dealing with, which is COVID-19 and the pandemic. I can only imagine the people who are working on this issue right now in government and what they must be having to deal with when you are literally fighting an invisible enemy that is everywhere at the same time. And you don't know when, in the cases you worked on, you knew at some point, there would be an end, some resolution would would happen. You might not have known what it was at the moment, but you knew at eventually, this will come to an end. No one knows exactly what's going to happen with COVID-19 and this pandemic. And when it will end, what lessons could you apply from your experiences then to the situation now?
2: You know, I think my big lesson spending five and a half years in the Pentagon was there are so many people in the U.S. government, certainly in the federal government, and I feel sure this is true at the state and local level, who are deep experts, who are also profoundly patriotic, and who not only want to do the right thing, they crave to do the right thing. That's what motivates them, is using their lives for service and using their lives to govern well. And I think, you know, the best thing to do in crisis situations is to find those people and to let those people follow those instincts to do the right thing and to lead and to focus on those who are in fact acting in really good faith. I think, you know, we spend a lot of time now obsessing over actors and actions that aren't in good faith. And we we should. We should certainly not let anyone, you know, with bad purposes off the hook. <clears throat> but I think the more we can focus on all of the people who are working night and day to find a vaccine, all of the people who are, Working on all the plans for shelter in place, and then also for how can we possibly reopen and protect the economy while also protecting other Americans? How can we get PPE to the right places? You know, there are thousands of people working on these problems. And I think the more that we can all do to recognize them and to help them and to let them do those jobs, you know, again, that's that principle. And if you have an action officer who knows Libya, get out of his way. Let him do it. He's ready to lead.
1: I think the constant here is, you know, about 12 hours into my experience, a colleague, he actually sat right next to me who did not work on Turkey, took it upon himself to organize the office with the expectation that we would be in a crisis for a while. I think his his assumption was, even if we weren't, then we could just shelve those plans but we needed to act as if we were going to be and he set up a schedule for people to make sure that they could go home and sleep and eat maybe say hi to their sleeping children in my case and that it would be sustainable and i remember thinking there's no way i can leave this office you know in when my when my time is up you know this is my job this is happening in the country i work on and he was quite Firm that in fact, I could leave the office and that I should, and that if we were going to be at this for at least a few days, which it turned out we were, that I had to, I needed to, to recharge. And I think that I would have come to that conclusion later, but eventually. But what that sort of very deliberate planning approach bought us in the office was endurance. And it turned out we d- only needed it for a few days. But I think building in that need for endurance and resilience and allowing people, even the most important people sort of in a in a matrixed organization working on a crisis, to take a breath and to make sure that they're attending at a minimum to their essential needs was really important and made us better during a, a critical time. Um, and national security types, as I'm sure public health types and epidemiology types, um, all are so motivated by service, as Alice said, that they will burn themselves out. And I think having a plan that not only addresses how the country will get through this, but also how those who serve the country will get through this is really, really important. And subsequently, a a few months later, sent a note to that colleague who had by that time left the NSC and told him how important it was. That he had done that for all of us and that we had managed to sort of live through that, that period of time before our, our boss got back from overseas, unfortunately absent paint fumes. We could continue
0: talking about this for a long time. It's absolutely fascinating. And I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your stories, because I feel like at this point in history where we are, it's really helpful for others to know, and particularly people who may find themselves in a similar situation right now, to know how others have dealt with it and uh, and to hear your lessons learned. Alice Friend, Shannon Culbertson, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks, Bev. Thanks, Bev. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next
2: time.